So reading Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock, of the herd, and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into its pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire. Then the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we ask you now to awaken in our minds and hearts uh, what the Israelites were experiencing as they were hearing these words, uh, fulfilling these instructions uh, that you gave to Moses and to his people. We ask you now, Lord, to awaken us, uh, have your Holy Spirit stir us to understand and apply this truth. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I want to read a few verses from Exodus 40, and then we'll begin entering into Leviticus 1. Then the cloud covered the tabernacle of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now, they had just finished erecting this tabernacle. They were at the foot of Mount Sinai. They had not been out of Egypt for very long, just a few months. And so we have God, upon the completion of the building of that tabernacle, fill it with his presence, such that no human could be in that building. And his cloud was standing above the tabernacle. And in that moment, during that time, is when we now begin Leviticus 1, Verse 1, now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him. This only occurs a few times in Scripture where it said, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him. The burning bush here, and one other instance that I can't remember. But it's not pertinent to what I want to share right now because what I want to share is that people, you have probably shared the gospel with people. And I've, over the years, uh, shared the gospel, I guess, with a lot of people, because I can recall conversations where I try to share the gospel with them, and they say, if only I could see God, then I would believe you. What they then imply is that they would believe me, they would believe God, they would believe the Bible, they would obey, they would submit. Did the Jews do that? Every day for 40 years, they saw a pillar of cloud over the tabernacle. Every night, it transformed into a flame of fire. Six days a week, they would go out and gather up manna, miraculously deposited there by God. And on the Sabbath day, no, no manna. So every day, they saw God. Every day, they saw miracles. And yet, they all died in unbelief. So when people tell you, that if only they saw God, they would believe. Don't believe them. Share that story with them. They probably don't know it. They're unbelievers. They probably don't know the Bible. But share that story with them. Let them know that he who comes to God must come by faith, and that then God will reward that faith. So now, I want to start into this text. 
animal sacrifice was regulated by the book of Leviticus, but I would say that it was not initiated by the book of Leviticus. In other words, God did, I believe, institute animal sacrifice, but it is not here at this point in time at the foot of Mount Sinai. It was earlier, much earlier. Let's turn to Genesis. Genesis chapter 3, verse 21. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. And so now most of you have probably uh, come to an understanding of this, that God had to kill an animal, maybe one, maybe more, in order to clothe Adam and Eve. They had been naked. They had covered themselves with fig leaves. Now, after he's pronounced judgment upon them, he clothed them. And an animal had to die in order to produce that clothing. And then let's just go on to the next few verses, starting at chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So we've got a rancher and a farmer. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. So we see here that they both brought gifts. God accepted the gift of an animal, but he did not accept the gift whatever it is Cain brought from the land. Were they just guessing at what God might want? I don't think so. Listen to what Abel brought. Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock, which we later see is instituted. It is the firstborn that you bring. Firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And we know that later... Fat, you know, belongs to the Lord. That's what Leviticus 3.16 says. All the fat is the Lord's. So Abel is doing this with knowledge. He's doing this having known, having been instructed that this is what he was to do. And Cain did what he wanted. He didn't do what God had instructed him to do. So now man learned early that animal sacrifice was required. It was a part of living in God's presence. Noah exits the ark, and what's the first thing Scripture says he does? Chapter 8, verse 20. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. Now, nearly all other animals on earth were destroyed in the flood, except for what he had on the ark. Yet he had enough animals to burn these animals as an offering to the Lord. Why? Why was it that Noah offered sacrifices to God? Why do you think? This was a thanks offering. He was thankful to be getting off that boat after all that time spent on it. He was thankful that he was alive, he and his family. So he was thanking God through the means that God had instituted. The way that we can draw close to God at that time was through animal sacrifice. And sacrifice persisted well beyond then. We know that Job was a contemporary, most likely, of Abraham's. And we read in Job 1, verses 1 through 5, and it tells the story of how his seven sons and three daughters would rotate through celebrations. And at the end of that rotation, Job would sacrifice for every one of them. He would have at least ten sacrifices on their behalf because he said, perhaps inadvertently in their heart they cursed God, and he wanted them to be cleansed from what they had done. And then we know in Genesis 15, with Abraham, God commanded him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Now, I want to walk through those animals again because you can get confused. 
bring me a three-year-old heifer, that's a cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, that's a male sheep. So we've got a cow, a goat, and a sheep thus far. And then a dove and a pigeon. So there are five animals. And these are the five animals that I just read about in Leviticus 1. So the very same five animals that God instituted with Abram as sacrifices, he reinstitutes with the Israelites in Leviticus 1 as sacrifices. Now, let's go on to Leviticus 1, verse 3. If his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd. Now, I've read the Bible a lot, and yet it's really easy to get lost in these chapters because there are a lot of sacrifices talked about. And so I want to, for anybody that's curious, and you're here, so hopefully you can be curious, you can learn something, but there are essentially four types of animal sacrifices, and I'll get, run through the basics of them. There is the one that we're talking about in verses 1 through 9 here of chapter 1, the burnt offering. Part of the difficulty in remembering these sacrifices is there, are, for every sacrifice, there is another term that can be used to refer to it as well. And so the burnt offering, and you won't hear this one much, because this is one that commentators say really ought to be associated with this term, but this is the ascension offering. Because in the burnt offering, everything ascends to God. It is burnt up entirely. Now, of every animal, I don't think the birds, but of all of the, uh, the, those from the herd of the flock, uh, the intestines are removed. They're burned outside the camp. Those are unclean. God doesn't want them. He knows we don't want them. So they go out onto the, to, to the burn pile. But so the burnt offering, all of the meat, all of the animal, except for the hide and that interior that God disposes of outside the camp, is burned up for God. Then there is another offering called the peace offering. This is also, and this is, uh, you'll see it in Scripture, called the fellowship offering. So this is the peace or fellowship offering. Now this one differs from the others in a very unique way. And this one, like I said in the burnt offering, it all goes to God. Yet the peace offering, everybody gets a piece of it as well. So peace, peace, different spelling. And so you have the priest who gets a piece of it. You have God who gets a piece of it. And you have the offerer himself who gets a piece of it. And it is for peace, fellowship. That's what you're celebrating. That's what you're desiring. That's why you're sacrificing it to God. You're either, you're either thanking God for the peace that he's given you or you're requesting that God bring you peace. The third one is the sin offering, and you'll hear this quite regularly. Now, this is also known as the purification offering. And so a sin offering is where someone is made holy, made acceptable to God. Now, this one is also different. It's not different in terms of the eating. In this one, the offerer only eats the peace offering, but the priests get to partake of this offering, the sin offering and the guilt offering. And so the sin offering, the priest gets some, and then the rest is burned up on the altar. But in the sin offering, in the purification offering, what's different is the blood. The blood is always collected, and yet in this instance, the blood is collected, and then it is used not just at the altar, but at the door of the tabernacle and potentially even in the tabernacle, depending on who is bringing the sacrifice. So the sin offering, the purification offering, what's different about it is the blood. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. And the fourth offering, the last offering, is called the guilt offering. Now this is one is interesting. This is also called the trespass offering. And so the guilt offering, the priest can eat again, uh, it's, it's burned up. Uh, the blood is handled just like it is in other instances, and we'll get to that shortly. But the guilt offering is to make someone unholy. It's weird, isn't it? You've got the sin offering that makes someone holy enough to enter into God's presence, but yet you've got the guilt offering by which someone is de-sanctified. See, common people 
are not supposed to be sanctified and worshiping God in the way that the priests and Levites are. So if they happen to touch something holy that they ought not to have, they have this guilt or trespass offering that can remove that because with that, they are now being judged by God in ways that they're not supposed to be fulfilling their functions. So, four offerings. Burnt, peace, sin, and guilt. Only in the burnt sacrifice does no human eat the meat. In all the others, priests and sometimes the offerer eats the meat, and everything is burnt up. Now, let me walk through this text and share with you five symbols that we see in this text and throughout Leviticus, throughout Scripture, such that you can then kind of hopefully remember it. In verse 4, then he, this is the offerer we're talking about. It's the person that has led this animal up to the priest at the altar. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He will lay his hand on the head of the offering. Laying on hands is a common thing in Scripture, and it has meaning. To lay on hands is to impart something to this person who is being laid upon or to this animal who is being laid upon. For instance, in 2 Timothy, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's reminding him, stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Did Paul personally give Timothy this gift? No. By virtue of him being an apostle, being an elder in God's church, he laid his hands upon Timothy, and Timothy received a gift from God through Paul. And so he, as the apostle and elder, was merely a channel through which God chose to bless Timothy, and Paul knew it. Paul depended on it. We all still depend on it. We elders still speak of having laid hands upon people and God blessing through us. It's remarkable that God will promise to use us in this way, but that's a laying on of hands. Now, in Leviticus 16.21, on the Day of Atonement, the annual Day of Atonement, what would the high priest do with that scapegoat? You remember? The one dies, but then the blood, he places his hands in the blood, and then he puts his hands on the scapegoat. And then you see those bloody handprints, and then that is released into the wild to bear the sins of Israel away. So again, that high priest is acting as a channel of this sin that is in this community goes onto that and goes away. So again, it's this channel. But see, there's more than just a symbology here. There's more than just the meaning of the laying on the hands of the sandal being, being a, uh, a, uh, having something imparted to it. And the, the word for it is substitute. That animal, in this instance, becomes a substitute based on the laying on of hands. Let me read to you something from Numbers chapter 8, because here is an excellent illustration of both concepts. I'll start reading in Numbers 8 at verse 10. So you shall bring the Levites before the Lord, and the children of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. Now, the Levites were selected by God to be representative of all Israel, remember? They counted up all the firstborn of all Israel, the firstborn males, and then they dedicated all of these Levites, the whole tribe, to take their place. And then the disparities in number they needed to have special sacrifices for to make it even. God is very fair. I mean, he has a system. So, the children of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites, and Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord. They are being offered to God like a wave offering from the children of Israel that they may perform the work of the Lord. So the children of Israel lay their hands on the Levites. The Levites are then dedicated to God. They're being given to God by the Israelites in mass. Then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the young bulls, and you shall offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. You see both instances of what I'm talking about here. You see the substitution 
followed by the laying on of hands, the imparting of sin. Thus you shall separate the Levites from among the children of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. So they are now God's, to do with as he will. Let's go on to the next verse. It's verse 5. He shall kill the bull. Again, he is the offerer. He shall kill the bull before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting. He shall kill the bull before the Lord. What it was to be a man in this system. I mean, you had to take this animal, escort it up there, lay your hands upon it, and then slit its throat and allow the blood to bleed out into a basin that the priests have there to collect the blood to be used in this, in this ghastly uh, ritual. Yet, that's what's happening. So the offerer executes this animal. Leviticus 17, verse 11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. And then the writer of Hebrews says, without shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So this letting out of the blood, the collecting of it by the priests is required in order to fulfill this atonement. Now, the blood is not only shed and it's not only collected in this basin. At this point, for all but the uh, offering where they have to actually take it into the temple or into the tabernacle, they take it they go to one corner of the altar, and they splash some there, and they go to the other corner of the altar, and they splash some there. They throw all that blood out on the sides of the altar. The altar is about seven and a half feet square. It's about four and a half feet high, and from the corner posts, it has this netting that hangs about halfway up the four and a half feet. So there's a netting here. That's where they put all the animal parts. And so that was gold when they built it. They built it out of acacia wood and overlaid it all with gold. But you can imagine how quickly it became stained with the blood of all of these animals, this just grisly scene that's going on. But that's the scene. And then the, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. But again, this splashing of the blood and also the standing at the tabernacle door for the one sacrifice where the blood is sprinkled at the door of the tabernacle this is reminiscent, is it not, of what happened during the last plague in Egypt when the doorposts, the blood had to be applied to the doorposts, or the angel of death was going to come in there and take your firstborn unless you were protected by the blood on the doorposts. It wasn't enough that you slaughtered the lamb. You had to apply it to the doorposts. It's the same thing is here, evident here. It isn't enough that the offerer has brought the animal up, laid its hands on him, and slit the throat. That blood has to go under the altar. That altar, really, if you can imagine witnessing this, that altar reflects hell. That's what it was showing. That reflects God's judgment. And I'm glad I'm out here and not in there. Now, let me read a little bit further. Verses 7 through 9. The sons of Aaron the priest shall put the fire on the altar and lay the wood in order on the fire... Then the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. So the person, the offerer, has had to dismember that animal. And he, everybody, every male in Israel was essentially a butcher, had to learn to butcher animals, unless you were so poor that you could never afford to bring a sheep or a goat or a cow, because then all you could bring was a dove or a pigeon to be sacrificed on your behalf. Now, there is one reason. There is a phrase that occurs in Scripture during um, probably a little bit in Judges, but throughout Kings and Chronicles, it was that the high, high places were not removed. 
God has instituted this sacrificial system, and it must occur here outside the door of the tabernacle. That's where this seven-and-a-half-foot-square altar is that he has had created. And yet, where did people instead choose to worship? Wherever they wanted. Doesn't this ring a bell? I can remember hearing people say, oh, well, why do I have to go to church anyway? I can worship God anywhere. I can worship God on the golf course just as well as I can worship in one of these chairs. So why do I need to go to a stuffy church? So people want to be close to God. Lots of people were sacrificing on the high places. But they don't want to be inconvenienced in attempting to get close to God. And what do you think God thinks of such people? Last week, I referenced this book by Rain Wilson, the fellow from office. And uh, he's Baha'i faith. And I referenced that he was Baha'i faith. And in his, uh, he's like 51 or something like that now. And he's really embracing his faith that he had kind of walked away from for a while. But let me read to you why he recommends Baha'i to us. Maybe you'll switch. I'm proselytizing for Baha'i here. Young Baha'is are taught that the best of human virtues are the qualities of God himself, and that as we radiate kindness, humility, compassion, and honesty, we are shining with the light of the Creator that is inside every single one of us. We learned as fledgling Baha'is the idea that work in the spirit of service is the highest form of worship. So far, not too bad. This is great stuff for a kid. None of that guilt garbage to bog one down. We weren't born sinful in this worldview, you see. We're noble beings who are dual-natured, both divine and animalistic in our essence. God loves us no matter what we do. There's no hell either, just in case you were wondering. So he likes the Baha'i faith. He proselytizes for them. He's got a, a, an appendix in here that describes the nature of Baha'i and why it is the fastest-growing religion in America. Now, they're not starting out with a lot of people, and so they can maybe double or triple their numbers fairly easily, but still, this appeals to people. Now, I've covered four elements, the laying on of the hands, the killing of the bull before the Lord, the sprinkling of the blood on the sides of the altar, and then the fact that this is a burnt sacrifice. This is all being burnt up. Now, the fifth element is actually the only one that's not really applicable completely in the burnt sacrifice, and that's because the word sacrifice itself is... We, I believe, don't have a full-orbed understanding of the word sacrifice, just in the way that we describe it. Because sacrifice isn't just about this animal being killed and having its blood be the substitute for us. It's also about this meal. And so there is a meal involved in this. The peace one is the one where everybody gets to eat of it. The offerer, the priest, and then the rest is burned up for God. But yet, there is a sense in which an essential element of the sacrificial system means there is fellowship involved, and the fellowship involves food. You might now think, oh, that's why the title of this message is Bread of God. Now, what is the primary purpose of the sacrificial system? So I've kind of run through the text and given you those, those five excerpts, but what is the meaning of the sacrificial system. Well, I think the main one that becomes obvious pretty quickly is that God is holy, we are not, and therefore God has instituted this fairly particular method by which we can relate to Him. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy chapter 23, starting at verse 12. Also, you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out, and you shall have an implement among your equipment. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. What's just happened? This person's just gone out and taken a poo outside of the camp. 
See, the, the New King James kind of cleans that up a little bit for us, but that's what's just happened. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy, that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. So God has implemented rules such that he then is welcome in their midst. And should they violate those rules willy-nilly, then he will consider that as that they're withdrawing the welcome mat. We don't want you in our community, God. We refuse to obey your rules to have you come near to us. Let me look a little ahead further in Leviticus, and I'll read chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took a censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord spoke, saying, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. So this is what happens. This is what people risk when they choose to go to God or to not implement his uh, means of coming close to God without God's approval. They die. Now, I think, though, at this point, it's easy for us to forget to ask a very important question. I began this by saying, what's the meaning of the sacrifice system? What's the main meaning? And so we see that God is very particular with how he wants people to approach him. But see, what's the point of the system? Such that people can approach him. God wants us near. From man's perspective, the answer, I think, is obvious to any who truly seek to know God. You want to be close to God because that's why you were made. We exist for God. And anybody that gives up pursuit of the true meaning of life, the true meaning of their existence, prior to coming to that knowledge is always going to live a disappointing life. I don't care how wealthy they are. I don't care how much pleasures they get out of life. You cannot, you cannot truly be fulfilled as a human and have no relationship to the God of Scripture. Man was created for God. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. So we know now why people ought to pursue God, why we want to be close to God. But why would God want to draw close to us? And again, reading in Deuteronomy, starting at chapter 7, verse 6, you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers. So God tells us that he loves us and he wants to be near us. But the way to be near me is like this. If only you will care to do it that way, I will come near to you, and we can have fellowship. There was a movie, finally a movie reference for you young people. There was a movie that came out in the mid-'80s starring Michelle Pfeiffer. It is called Lady Hawk. And who can remember that movie? It's very old. It's older than nearly all of you. But so Lady Hawk tells the tale. It's a fantasy movie, but it tells the tale of this man and woman that love one another, and yet they've been cursed. And the curse is that he 
during the daylight is in the form of a wolf. She, during the nighttime, is in the form of a hawk. And so they can't be together. Whomever has cursed them has made it impossible for them to be together. And so, now I'm not going to go into much great, greater depth on that movie. I liked it, but it probably has some bad parts. Don't watch it. <laughs> Unless your parents tell you you can. But see, God has ordained a means of getting to us together when it was impossible for us to be together. He walked in the garden with Adam, but that was for a moment. And since that time, there has had to be implemented this complex mechanism of us being able to enter into his presence. But because he loves us, he has made a way to do that. I want to bring up some, go deeper into Leviticus. I want to bring up a few elements. Verse 2. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when any of you brings an offering to the Lord. What's implicit in this verse is that these people want to bring this offering to the Lord. Leviticus 1 through 7 is all about voluntary offerings that the average person is wanting to bring to God. The rest of Leviticus, we talk about all the formal things, um, the ceremonies, the, the Sabbath days. Every morning and evening, they were to give a burnt sacrifice. Every Sabbath day, they were to give a burnt sacrifice. Um, at the new moon, they gave a sacrifice. So they, God had these rituals in place for them as a community. But he also allowed any individual to approach him and thus allow him to approach them through these means, through these sacrifices. The average person could do this. And this is why Christ was so angry with the leaders. You are making this a den of thieves, a marketplace. This was meant to be a way for God to be close to people. And the powers that be were just making money from it and, and riding roughshod over the people. Christ was very upset by that. Matthew Henry said concerning this that sacrifice was an implicit acknowledgement of their having received all from God as creatures and their having forfeited all to him as sinners. In other words, I know I'm separated from you, God. Please allow me to come near. And so God made a way. In verse 3, if the offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. God expects him, expects the very best from us. And so we owe him our very best. Do we want to give him what's left over from our, oh, I have all that I need now. Now I can tithe to God. That is not going to work. God will not bless you in that way. God wants your heart. He wants you. And he knows he doesn't have it. If you love your stuff more than him, if you don't give of God your first fruits. Another Matthew Henry quote He that considers that God is the best that is will resolve to give him the best he has. But Malachi accused these people of not giving God their best. Listen to what Malachi says in chapter 1, verse 8. When you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably? So the sacrificial system was this doorway through which people could enter into God's midst. And he prescribed the manner in which it could be done, and yet it became perfunctory for people. It became something they had to do. I have to go to church today. We can become the same way. We point the fingers at people, but we always ought to also be pointing at ourselves. I want to read 2 Corinthians, starting at chapter 9, verses 6 through 8. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. 
So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, note that, all, 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 may have an abundance of every good work. Listen to this. You give your best to God, and this is what God says. God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. You cannot outgive God. I know I've heard Pastor Kaiser say that. You give God your best. He will pour blessing back into your life. Now, one thing also that was implicit in these first nine verses was, and I introduced it when we talked about Abram and the animals that were authorized, cow, goat, sheep, dove, pigeon. This essentially goes, declines in value. The most expensive would have been the cow, and then the nest most expensive would have been the goat, and then the sheep, and then the, the dove and the pigeon. And so God allowed for the poor to enter into his presence just as well as the wealthy. So God knows our positions, and he has made provision for that. Now, there are two phrases in here that, are, uh, that we need to talk a little bit more about, and they're both in verse uh, 9. But he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Those are the phrases I want to discuss. Now, let me share with you, and on the handout that I actually intended to bring, I would have had it written there, but let me share with you how the ESV and the NIV phrase this. In the phrase, offering made by fire, they simply translate it as food offering. On the altar as a burnt sacrifice, a food offering, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Let me ask you a riddle. Who likes riddles? You might recognize this one. Feed me, and I live. Give me something to drink, and I die. Feed me, and I live. Give me something to drink, and I die. Does anybody know the answer to that? Fire. Why does that riddle make sense to us? Feed me. We always talk about feeding the fire. If you've ever been at a fire, you'll hear the phrase, hey, it's time to feed the fire. Because that fire is devouring its food. It's devouring that fuel that you're putting on it, that wood. In the sacrificial system, God is said to eat the sacrifice. That burning of the animal, that fat, it's going up. It's, it's, it's a soothing aroma to the Lord, yes. But by its destruction, it's said that God can be said to be eating it. And so then we have this sweet aroma to the Lord. Why is it? What is it about the sacrifice that pleases the Lord? Is it the smell? Does God like the smell of burning fat like we do? You know that's not the case, right? All of these references we have to God like that are all anthropomorphic. We know that God doesn't have a body like us, so it must mean something else. What does it mean when there is this soothing aroma? I believe the easiest place to find the answer is Genesis 8. When Noah got off the ark, he built this altar to the Lord, took of every clean animal and of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar, and the Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. So see, God is stating two things here very clearly. He is pleased by the soothing aroma. He's pleased by what Noah has done. He's accepting that on Noah's behalf as a good work of obedience. And yet he's acknowledging that man is evil. This sacrifice is not cleansing man of the evil that is in him. Yet God is pleased by our obedience. So see, the sacrificial system 
was insufficient in many ways. Again, the clearest example is probably in Hebrews, where the writer of Hebrews kind of chronicles its shortcomings very succinctly. But in Hebrews 10, we read, starting at verse 1, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshipers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And I would add every day, because they would see it every day, morning and evening. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sins. So we know the repetition points to the inefficiency, the inadequacy of the system that animal deaths were entirely incapable of covering over human sins because while you have a sentient being here, you don't have this moral being made in the image of God. And we also know that even, and let's go to Micah 6, 6 through 8. I'm sure many have this memorized, but Micah 6, 6 through 8 says this. With what shall I come before the Lord? and bow myself before the high God. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Also, there's that incident in which Saul lost his kingship, where he insists on doing the sacrifice himself as opposed to waiting for Samuel. And what did Samuel say when he rebuked him? Obedience is better than sacrifice. Ooh. See, Saul just thought it was this uh, quid pro quo. I'm doing this to please you, God, and you're going to do the, this for me. It doesn't matter that I'm the one doing it, and I'm not waiting for Samuel the priest to do it. It's just the fact that this animal needs to be burnt up such that you will then do what I want. Saul was seeing it as this deal, this, this, this brokerage account that he was tallying money into such that he could draw it down later. So see, even human sacrifice, Micah tells us, even human sacrifice is insufficient. Why? What is flawed in the system? Even though it's a human, it's a sinful human. Your son would be sinful like you. Hasn't committed as many sins, but we know that he's flawed because he is descended from Adam just like all of us are. In Genesis 22, it comes close to what we need to really understand and talk about. And I talked about this. It's been eight years now when we did a series called Jesus in Genesis in the Communion Meditations. And in that series, I walked through Genesis 22, gave several messages. But you have many illustrations in Genesis 22 where Abraham is willing to offer up Isaac. Many parallels between what's going on there and what's going on in the New Testament, death of Christ. One, for instance, Abraham puts the wood on Isaac's back and Isaac walks off. And then when they get there, he builds an altar. He takes the wood off of his back, puts it there, and then he puts Isaac on the wood. Same thing happened to Christ. Christ carries the wood, and then he's placed on the wood. And what's interesting about this, and that I drew out eight years ago, is I believe it's the same physical location. Abraham had gone all that distance to this point where later Jerusalem was built and the cross was erected to, to, to kill Christ on. And so it's in many ways so complete in speaking of this. But what happened, though? What happened that day? We know that Abraham was willing. He got up. He took Isaac. He left his servants behind. They go on. And Isaac said, Father, you have the fire. You have the wood but where is the sacrifice? And what did Abraham say? Son, God will provide a sacrifice 
And it's at that point, I think, that Abraham went on to explain to Isaac that he was the sacrifice. Because, yes, he did bind him later, and before he put him on the wood. But I don't think he said, look over there, Isaac, and then tied bands around his arms. No, no. He instructed Isaac in what was happening. Isaac was willing to die. And so then Abraham raises the knife, and the angel stops him. But God restrained Abraham from killing Isaac. Why? Because human sacrifice, Isaac's human sacrifice, would not have been sufficient. But God had plans for what would be sufficient. It would be his, his own son's death. Let me read from Hebrews 10. It's a little further on from what I read earlier. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So see, let's not forget some, sometimes we think of the whole sacrificial system as just God's method of restraining himself from zapping us and killing all of humanity again like had happened in Noah's day with the flood. But that's, if you think that way, you're missing the point. Yes, there is a way in which we need to be protected from God's wrath, just like Uzzah touching the ark as it's being transported on that cart. Zap, God killed him. We need to be protected from that powerful, just, righteous, holy God that would zap us, like Nadab and Abihu. But yet the point of the sacrificial system is allow us to draw near to him. It allowed the Israelites to draw near to God such that they could love him, such that he could love them. The essence of the sacrificial system was getting to that fellowship that was possible, that God made possible. So see, we know God went, had to go beyond animal sacrifice, grain sacrifice, even human sacrifice. He had to go to divine sacrifice in order to make that relationship possible that we have with him, to make it permanent. And so it's that that we enjoy with God right now by virtue of what he did through Christ. Now remember, too, that these Israelites were living in this Old Testament time and so we know that the New Testament is in the Old concealed, whereas the Old Testament is in the New revealed. So we look back and we see so much more, so much more clearly. We can pull all these texts together from Isaiah and Genesis and Job and Psalms and all over the place to paint this wonderful picture of what God has done. But back in this day, in 1000 BC, you didn't have it nearly that clear. And these people were living their lives in that mysterious sacrificial system, that ghastly system with all this blood flowing over that altar. How could that possibly have significance? And yet it does. It was required. Blood was still required. And that's why Christ's blood had to flow. Without the remission of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so let's celebrate his gift to us. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence with us. You have cleansed our hearts. You have cleansed our bodies. And you have implanted your Holy Spirit within us. We give you thanks, Lord, for having done this miraculous work. You have allowed fallen man and holy God to come together as close as is possible on this earth. And we thank you for this, Lord. It is through the blood of Christ that you have made provision for us. We give you thanks for this. In his name, for the glory of his kingdom. Amen.